a golden god! An equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. To a new world of gods and monsters. <laughs> Who's weirder, you or me? You just put the law on my hands, and I'm gonna break your heart. Nobody puts baby in the Whatever you do, don't fall Hello and welcome back to Movies for Life. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brian Kuyper. And I am your other co-host, Michelle Egan. And today, it's all happening. I knew you were going to say that. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> we are I knew that was coming. I love it. I was like, do I say that? Do I say crazy? Do I say I'm a golden god? <laughs> there are so many options from this movie, are there not? There's there feck you. <laughs> That's one of my favorite lines. Well, I'm sure we'll get to that. So today we're talking about the first of our two parts on our number one forever favorites. And we're starting with mine and my favorite that I've chosen for this list, at least, is from 2000 Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. Technically, though, we're talking about Untitled the director's cut version of Almost the bootleg Famous. Cut. The bootleg cut. Yes, that's the title that he uses. So here we are. I, I'm kind of amazed that we're here. We're already here at the end of our forever favorites. Oh. But It's been a fun journey. It has been a fun journey. And I mean, I'm sure that as has happened, we've talked about Child's Play, for example. <laughs> there are other forever favorites that are not officially on our top five list that have sort of right. popped in, and I'm sure others will along the way as well. Our forever 20 favorites, you know? <laughs> yeah, it could go on and on and on, honestly. <laughs> it could go on forever. <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit probably at the end of the next episode when we talk about Michelle's number one. What we're going to do next... What do we do every fifth episode or so? Uh, What are we going to do after that? And we've got an idea for that. And we're excited to talk about that. I'm really excited Mm -hmm. for the possibilities there. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Well, almost famous. What I to start (laughs) this one out, you know, I kind of always talk about how did you first come to this movie? Do you remember when you first came to this movie? I actually saw it in the theater. I went with my parents to see it, in fact. I had graduated from college. I was about to venture into career world, which was not particularly going swimmingly at the time, but it was what it was. So I was, uh, I wouldn't saw this because frankly, it was a recommendation by Roger Ebert. He loved this movie. (laughs) He absolutely (laughs) adored this movie and just talked it up all over the place. And of course, at the time, you know, it was from the director of Jerry Maguire and Jerry Maguire had been a huge hit, right? So this was sort of poised to be one of those kinds of movies where a lot of people were going to go to it. So that's where I was. Actually, I guess this came out at the end of 2000. So I was just about to graduate when this came out. Crazy. Do you remember at all when you first saw this movie? Yeah. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> Not at all. I just remember I had seen it before, but it was many years later, just like 
talking to my friends online mostly. My best friend Rachel. Hey, mm-hmm. how you doing? My other best friend. Sorry, sorry, Brian. That's okay. <laughs> I'm not. I'm this not is like one of her favorite movies. She would always like reference it, and was like, "Yeah, almost famous." I haven't seen that in a really long time. So I think the last time I remember seeing it was just a few years ago when I bought the uh, the blue bootleg uh, Blu-ray mm-hmm. cut. So well, when it came out on video. I bought it. So I had the VHS tape of it. And mm-hmm. uh, my when I was then dating my now wife, I showed this movie to her and we both kind of fell in love with it all over again. And we just started watching it all the time. I mean, whenever there was just, and this was the theatrical cut, of course, that was on VHS. And so we watched it a lot, (laughs) just over and over again, for whatever reason. It was just the one that we kept coming back to. And we still, you know, we walk around the house and we'll just say the lines to each other. (laughs) And then when the bootleg cut came out, it was like, wow, this is even better. So we started watching that a lot and watch it with the commentary and be doing other things and just throw it on. One of those movies you kind of throw on just whenever you have stuff to do. It's good for that. Yeah, it was, it's a, it's a hangout movie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It's character heavy more than it is plot heavy. I mean, obviously you're on a journey. It's kind of a road movie (laughs) in a lot of ways. But we could just always find ourselves feeling like we were sitting on this tour bus singing Tiny Dancer. And when Penny says, you are home, we're like, yeah, we know. We know we are home. (laughs) You know, this. You are home with this movie. Yeah. It's just very, it's a very warm, comforting feeling kind of movie. Even though to me, it is very sad most of the time. Yeah. And the sadness showed through to me more in my rewatch yesterday than probably it ever has before. I've always felt it. It's always been there. I mean, just Penny's line, the what kind of beer line, I think is one of the saddest lines that is in any movie ever. Uh, Just the way she says it and just sort of Mm. laughs after that. But this time through, I just felt the sadness all the way through. It's just an undercurrent that was there the whole time. And it was a little bit like the most recent rewatch of Goodfellas, where always before I had sort of watched the surface of it more. I had seen all of the sort of glitz of it, the lifestyle porn, if you want to call it that, of it all. But obviously with Goodfellas, there was a sort of a dark underbelly of just fear and danger. This doesn't feel so much like that. It's more just like sadness and just a melancholy that is at play, especially in four characters in particular, Penny with Russell, Jeff, but then also Elaine, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I found myself in recent years relating to Elaine, William's mother, played by Frances McDormand, more than I ever expected to. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are certain levels of crazy that I would never achieve. But at the same time, just being a person who loves your children fiercely, or child at least. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, we can, she loves Anita too. She, lo- she loves Anita too, but it is it is a interesting relationship, isn't it? Um, you are rebellious and ungrateful. Lo- my love. Or something. What is that? Yeah, that's Did the line. Right? That's the exact line. So I thought we'd kind of maybe approach this a little bit like we approached uh, that Goodfellas episode. Mm-hmm. And honestly, this is a little bit how I approached an article that I wrote for F This Movie about Almost Famous uh, for its anniversary. So I I just found myself putting myself in the shoes of these different characters in different 
points in my life. And this is a fiercely, shamelessly personal movie for Cameron Crowe. He was a 15-year-old writer for Rolling Stone. He did go on tour with bands. He did almost die in a couple of plane crashes with The Who and the Allman Brothers, I think. So uh, Russell Hammond is largely based on Greg Allman uh, from the Allman Brothers. Jeff Beebe has some relation to some of the more, you know, the jealous lead singers who are overshadowed by their guitar players, you know, (laughs) that we know is certainly the case. They even bring up a few examples in the movie. All the greats hated each other, right? You know, they talk about Mick and Keith and Paige and Plant and Plant. Blackmore Gillen, uh, which is a nice reference. I don't know to who they were. Deep Purple. Deep Purple. Okay. It's an interesting way to look at it. And I think the only place to start, uh, you got to start with William. I mean, William is yeah. our guide. William knows as much about this world as we do, right? So when we first meet William, <laughs> seeing him as this kid, we don't know how old technically yet. We assume he's, he's, he's young, right? But even before that, the opening credits where it just starts with the sound. I love the opening credits. Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, it starts with the sound of the needle dropping on the record. And that's what this movie feels like to me at this point. It's an album that I've listened to over and over and over again. And I just throw on and just let play all the way through, you know, because the closing credits end with the sound of that needle lifting up off of the record. So if you watch all the way through the credits, (laughs) all the way through all of feel flows by the beach boys at the end, you hear that sound of that needle lifting off the record. And that's what this movie is to me. It's just like a record that I've played over and over and, is a little bit worn and I know every groove and every pop and scratch on the album, right? Anyway. And those that, handwritten names. Yeah, the handwritten names. It's, it's, it's great. And I love how he misspells Francis McDormand. Misspells Francis. Yeah. yeah that is that is a wonderful moment. And and actually on the commentary, I think Cameron Crowe says something like, all right, Francis, thanks for getting the joke. Uh, you know, so nice. um, it, it was apparently something they had joked about. The opening credits are shot on video. So there's the, you can see the lines of the, especially on the 4K, which I saw the 4K for the first time yesterday watching this. It's as beautiful as it was when I first saw it in the theater, of course. And, you know, obviously pristine, whereas that print was not. So, um, nice. so it's probably even better than I've ever seen it. So there, you can see the, the lines of the, of definition going through it and all of those props. You know, all of those little mm-hmm. trinkets that he picks up along the way in the movie. And that's another thing. This movie is just so full of detail. Oh, yeah. Every shot is filled to the brim with details that you need to you just kind of experience over and over again, right, to pick up on. Now, Christmas in Southern California. <laughs> I, I love how it starts at Christmas in, and everyone is, you know, sunbathing and going surfing and Santa Claus. <laughs> I like and how it just shows shorts, how you know. weird... Yeah, how weird Christmas must be in California. <laughs> yeah, this is That's a, kinda, the feeling I get from it. So the movie begins in uh, San Diego of 1969. And instantly, you know, Francis McDormand's character of Elaine uh, gets set up <laughs> as being <laughs> quite a handful um, with her whole Xmas is not a word in the English language. I just love that. Yep. So the relationship between William uh, when he's young here, his mom and then his sister is is interesting. I think Zoe Deschanel is terrific in her little role. She's funny. She's really funny. She's kind of standing out the door smelling her breath. You know, you assume, has <laughs> she been smoking pot? Has she been drinking or something like that? And she walks in and says, you've been kissing. 
I can tell. And I know who it is. Who it it's is. Daryl. Daryl. Anita's whole line about, you know, you you don't let us listen to our music. You don't, first was rock and roll. It was celebrating Christmas and in September when you knew it wouldn't be commercialized. And, and banning things like uh, sugar and white flour, white flour from their diet and everything. Yeah. So, yeah, you do get the hint that she's like an overbearing mother or something. But mm. it, it almost kind of feels like she's just maybe more educated on like what's good for her kids and trying to provide what's best for her kids, even though it's not what they want. They just want to be normal like everybody else and mm-hmm. eat white bread, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, the banning of rock and roll is a funny thing. You know, the, the Simon and Garfunkel is poetry. It's like, well, yes, it's poetry of drugs and promiscuous sex. And she points to the, Look, they're on they're pot. High. Yeah, they're on pot. And and Simon and Garfunkel, I guess, commented on that and said, well, yeah, probably. (laughs) So, feck you, I think is one of the funniest lines in the movie because she can't even bring herself to say the real word in front of her mom. It's like, that's it. Your sister just said the F word. And then William, I think she said feck. She said feck. What's the difference? The letter U. (laughs) But he points right at his mother. But then he realizes how much younger he is than everyone else. He finds out that he is, in fact, 11 years old. He, so he's two years ahead of everyone else in school. And that's important. I'm spending time on this opening because this stuff really does kind of set up what is important as far as William's character goes. Because he's so much younger, he's just got a innocence and a mm-hmm. fresh face quality to him. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else to add to that. Just to say... 11! 11! Yeah. Uh, kid says that. Well, it's funny because, you know, that's the same kid who plays uh, the younger version of the older son in uh, Music of the Heart. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I they have that. They have that uh, when Meryl Streep, you know, he's the one who throws his violin to the floor. And, I didn't recognize him for some reason. It was a year after that movie, so... Yeah, so he's slightly older. But honestly, I feel bad for Anita in all this. You know, you are rebellious and ungrateful of my love. You can understand why, you know, because William is obviously favored by Elaine. We find out later, you know, their dad is absent from all of this because he died of a heart attack, which was true. A lot of this stuff is very autobiographical. Again, it's very shamelessly personal. I guess Cameron Crowe's sister really did run off to be a stewardess, (laughs) really did leave her albums to him, and he became obsessed with rock and roll, you know? And by the time he was 15, he really had connected with Lester Bangs. He really had gotten hooked up with Rolling Stone magazine to do interviews of these big bands. I mean, I think... I think they, he started out kind of with the Allman Brothers, but eventually he was working with Led Zeppelin. You know, in fact, the whole denying the story thing uh, was something that happened to him with the Allman Brothers and with Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. He's had struggles with the fact checker. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because he was so much younger than everybody else, it was a challenge. But hey, you know, think about the fact that his first book was going undercover as a high school kid and writing a book called Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which was his experiences because he was still so young as this professional writer reporter who had already graduated from high school. 
he was able to go back and pretend he was a high school student. <laughs> and so it's pretty, it's pretty wild. I have some issues with Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I haven't read the book, but there's a realism to that movie. You know, there's the stories yeah. that you don't get in other kinds of high school movies, right? In that movie. Mm-hmm. Hook it up with Lester Bangs. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman. What what can we say about Philip Seymour Hoffman? Uh, that he's the best. He was he, the best he at really everything was. he ever did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was making a good case during this period of time that he should just have a part in every movie. Pretty much. Wouldn't have minded it. I love his introduction in the radio station, too. And this relationship is so important for William to have been connected with this person. And... He's kind of the sage prophet of the whole movie. It's like, this is, no, it's going to be ugly. They're going to try. He lays it all out right at the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. Don't make friends with the rock stars. You got an honest face. They're going to believe you, but you have to be honest and unmerciful. But they just want you to make them look cool. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him. I kind of like that. He does. He does. I mean, and that whole thing where he says, why don't you just go be a lawyer or something? And then his face just drops. <laughs> but I can tell by the look on your face that you won't. Yep. It's a great section. And the scene of the radio station is so funny because he's sort of laying out his philosophy of rock and roll is that it's a culture of dumb. When it ceases to be dumb, it ceases to be real, right? So if that's the case, he's obviously going to not like bands like The Doors. <laughs> <laughs> right it's like well he's give a, me the guess who yeah he's a drunken buffoon posing as a poet give me the guess who <laughs> they got the courage to be drunken buffoons which makes them poetic you know he's just like don't pass this crap off as art that's his yeah. whole philosophy rock and roll is dumb and that's what makes it real that's what makes it good <laughs> Um, so I, I kind of like that perspective that he has. I think it's, it's refreshing. I find it just kind of a funny scene and, you know, the Iggy pop song and everything in the middle of the day is, <laughs> is great. All right. And he gives him an assignment for cream magazine. William is just kind of interesting throughout the course of the whole movie. I mean, obviously he's our guide. Obviously he's the one who is going to carry us through this world knowing as little about it as most of us do. He even tells Penny, she says, we live in the same town. And he says back to her, I think we live in different worlds. Yeah. And that's so true. That's like a running theme. It's like, what is what is this real world you keep talking about? Yeah. When he's talking to her. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like how fearless he is. <laughs> just having the courage. He's 15 years old. You know, he's got an assignment for a magazine. He just goes right up to the guy at the door and says, I'm here to interview back Sabbath. I'm writing for Cream. Yep. I, I don't know that I would ever have the courage to do that. I think he knows he's got the smarts and he's got the talents and mm-hmm. he just he's going for it. And I really admire him for that, at least. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's as innocent and as sweet as he is. He still has no problem talking to anybody. Just a good quality for someone to have. I'm jealous of him. I know. I mean, I <laughs> I think about some of these things like I haven't done interviews in my writing career as of this point, though. Weirdly enough, I was at one point slated to do an interview with Patrick Fugit. <laughs> Yeah, what happened? Uh, His most recent movie, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, I was going to interview him for Council of Zoom, and then things just 
never materialized. So that's weird. But anyway, just the idea of being able to interview people that you admire or are familiar with. I mean, that's terrifying to me. I'm going to be honest. It's terrifying. Yes. Yeah, I know you've done that. I've done that. it before. You've done that. A couple that. times. You actually gave me lie. some advice on how to approach that. And so I was like, because I don't know what to do, Michelle. Um, anyway. <laughs> Only a couple of times have I had the opportunity. But yeah, it's it's pretty terrifying because you want to show that, yeah, you're a true fan and you know what you're talking about, but you also don't want to seem like a nerd, you know, right. fangirl or fanboy, <laughs> even though you totally could go in that direction. This kind of another theme that comes through with William throughout the course of the movie he's just some fan but then the band says he's the enemy you're not a fan but then they also say we can trust him he's a fan exactly it just goes they're so contradictory they really are throughout the whole movie well and then when the fact checker says that line it's like he lied to us what do we do he's just some fan like that's a bad thing yeah i know it's like isn't that who you've been saying the whole movie mm-hmm. that you're playing for that the music is really for even though it's not you say that there's like this underlying thing of of sadness throughout the movie which there is but i also see like an, an underlying thing of inauthenticity oh totally just not being truthful with yourself i mean saying the right things but not actually living it and by the end, I think everybody realizes the inauthenticity of the world that they've been living in. That's what I get from the movie, which there is a sadness to that. Oh, definitely. I mean, William is the only thing in this world that is authentic. Yeah, that's and why they like him. That's why they like him. And by the end, you know, everyone's mask has slipped. Mm-hmm. You know, even the ones whose masks never slip, you know, like Penny. Yep. And, you know, it's hard to talk about William without talking about Penny at this point. Yeah. I've read some criticisms lately. Oh, she's just the manic pixie dream girl. Yeah. And I'm just like, I think she's more than that. I think she's a lot more than that. Yes. Yeah. Although and you can see like where people would be getting that idea from. But no, I think there's there's more to her character than that. Yeah. And I got to say this time around. I mean, the character of Penny always affects me, but Mm -hmm. every time I watch it, there's something else about her that, you know, like pierces my soul in some way. And I mean, here she is and all of the girls. I mean, they are these fragile, young, vulnerable women hiding under these false names and identities. Uh, Anna Paquin is putting on a fake accent during most of the movie I think it's intended to sound bad and I think it's intended to sound fake because I think every now and then she lets it slip. So-and-so's a fucking asshole. And it's clearly she's an American, you know, whereas then she'll do her British accent thing (laughs) other times. Uh Anna Paquin has Palexia Aphrodisia. Bijak. Which is uh, the one of Bijou the... Bijou Phillips is Estrella Star. Estrella Star. And then, um, of course, Penny Lane like the song okay first of all when we meet her she's very much like the cool girl of the group love kate winslet's whole look kate hudson kate hudson winslet (laughs) what the fuck (laughs) hudson (laughs) love her look just those little blonde ringlets of her hair good god it's that that coat she's just the glasses uh, It's instantly iconic. Yes. She just sort of comes out of the darkness into that glow, Mm -hmm. that sort of halo of light in the parking lot. You're not a what? That's her first line. (laughs) Yeah. Not a groupie. And then we are not groupies. We are 
band-aids. We're here that's for a, the music. That's like the perfect name that I love that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I get the dream girl thing, but it's so much deeper than that. And Hudson's performance throughout the film, she's a different person for almost everyone that she encounters. Mm-hmm. With William, she is I think as close to herself as she as she yes. ever gets. I mean, even before the Quaalude scene, I think she realizes, okay, this kid is actually authentic, so she's more authentic around him. But then she walks into somewhere like the Hyatt house and says, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and she's just sort of the Mm -hmm. queen of the hive. I mean, everyone is just drawn to her. You know, you have Peter Frampton as Reg saying, hey, Humble Pie would love to have you back. And it's like, I am retired. You know, she has these sort of (laughs) affectations she does. Yeah, Mm -hmm. she's telling, like, oh, I'm going to move to India, you know, then I'm going to go to college for one year. And everyone is just like, yeah, so infatuated with her but you know um something that i kind of noticed this time too like just her being maybe more drawn to actually authentic people that's like from the very beginning of the movie like one of the first things she says to william is i need a new crowd when she wants to move to morocco and also like when you hear her talking about other people like often being approached by these guys like at the hyatt house like alice cooper you know wants to see you or whatever sometimes in her lines like she gets more excited like she's being approached by um all these like famous people that know her and want to hang out with her but she's more excited about like when she sees you know humble pie's road manager she's like yes. or oh, i'll introduce like when they're talking about um bowie's gonna be there and she's like oh i'll introduce you to dennis his security guard you know like she talks more fondly about the real people maybe in this world mm-hmm. than the famous people even though she says has that line that famous people famous are people just, are more, just interesting. more interesting yeah yeah you know that's a terrific point that i hadn't considered and you're right on about it you're absolutely Mm -hmm. right on about it and the whole morocco thing is interesting too because she says to william later i think when we go to morocco we should wear completely different clothes and be completely different people different people because there is a sense that she wants to escape this but she is being seduced back to it constantly just as much as william is throughout the course of the movie because she's supposedly already retired she's already retired at the beginning yeah she's just drawn like a moth to the flame of russell He's my last project. Yeah. I need him. I mean, and she's always like, maybe he does love me. Maybe he loves me. He doesn't love her. Yeah. And that's one of the darker elements of this movie is I like Russell. I like Jeff. I like the manager, Dick. I, I think they're entertaining. They're funny people. You're kind of drawn to their cool, but yeah. they're kind of horrible. Oh, yeah. They use these people that are younger than them. They take advantage of them and toss them off. And that's a dark side to the rock and roll lifestyle. And we've mm-hmm. and and it continues to this day. I mean, R. Kelly was just sentenced for serious issues. I, I think what what's happening there is more egregious than what is being portrayed in this film. But this is dark stuff. I mean, these are likely underage girls. We don't know oh, yeah. for sure. We don't know for sure. Penny never actually gives us her real age necessarily there's that opening scene how old are you and he says 18 yeah and she goes me too how old are you really i'm 17 how old are we really yeah that's what she says yeah and then when she says i'm 
16, me too. The truth just sounds different. She goes, I'm 15. And then she stops. But (laughs) at the same time, is she even telling the truth at 16? Because my gosh, you know, if she's 16 and retired. Yeah, she already has this long history with bands and the guys. If she started before she was 16, yeah, that's not cool. (sighs) Yeah, that's pretty dark. But I think, you know, I read a criticism. This was just like an Amazon review, honestly, of the movie that said this world takes advantage of underage girls, which it does. And Cameron Crowe does nothing to point that out. And I don't think that's correct. I think that there is a lot in this movie that deals with that issue. Someone could read the whole movie as being in the way that Penny's being mistreated the whole time. Yeah. It's mostly, even though it's from William's point of view, it could be her movie, Yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, it is Penny's movie. Thanks. You know, I mean, we're drawn to her just as much as everybody else is. I mean, I think it's hard to watch this movie and not love her as much as you do William. Mm. I find myself just infatuated with her as much as William is. Yeah. Um, just what she represents. And I mean, she, she is with him, confidence. which I think is a cute. It's interesting because her relationship with him is almost kind of a puppy love relationship. <laughs> yeah. When she's with him. They're hanging out on the bus together. Because they're probably closer in age than than any of these other people, and she's she's singing all the songs on the bus. She's in the tiny dancer scene. Um, the part that I mean, it always gives me chills, and it always, sometimes it even makes me cry. Is when he looks at her during the tiny dancer scene and says, "I need to go home," and she just kind of flashes her hands in front of his face and says, "You are home," and puts her head on on his shoulder. I mean, that's just, that's very, you know, high school, college, choir tour kind of moment that I've experienced. That moment where the girl that you kind of like is sitting next to you on the bus and you're good friends and nothing more. (laughs) And she just sort of leans over and puts her head on your shoulder. It's like... I don't know. I get the feels when in, in moments yeah, like that. Totally. I can relate to William just sort of longing for this dream ideal, but then you kind of see her hurting herself with mm-hmm. someone else and it's painful to watch, you know, and there's sort of that love story element to her because who truly loves Penny more than anyone else in this movie is William. William. Everyone else gets sort of an image of her. And he gets closest to the real her. And that's powerful. Yeah. What I like was um, what Palexia says about her at the beginning of the movie, too. Because she pretty much, like, the guys obviously don't see what they're doing to her. But everyone else can kind of see what's going on with Penny. And Palexia just kind of lays it all out really well when she says that, you know, she worries about people using her. Yeah. Because she brings out the good side in everybody. But what do they do for her? Yeah, that's that's pretty much her her character. That's what that's what happens in the uh, the Quaaludes scene. Mm-hmm. And she asks, where, "Where are all my friends?" Yeah, that that's the line that always gets to me. Definitely. And the thing is, until you texted me and pointed that out, I had never even heard that line because it happens really? when she. Yeah, it happens when he goes over and like picks up the gigantic mm-hmm. bottle of Quaaludes, <laughs> <laughs> and she just says, "Where are my?" friends? friends and it was just like oh that was another moment that was like as well her friends quote unquote are all still in that restaurant talking with bob dylan Mm -hmm. as we hear on the The plane girls have gone off with other bands yeah well they were sold off along with penny to humble pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer Mm -hmm. okay so there are moments in this where 
And this is the dark side of the Penny character, okay? She is still a kid. I mean, she's still so young and still so vulnerable and kind of impressionable. And she is convinced that Russell is in love with her. And when it does the birthday party scene, okay, which is not in the theatrical cut. This is only in the extended version. And she has this moment. Russell reads the poem and says... An important line for her, too. She is a fan, fan of this of band. She's a fan of this band much more so than us. <laughs> yep. <I wrote laughs> That's that so too. important. That's so important. important. And then the new manager, Dennis Hope, played by Jimmy Fallon, comes over and says, Happy I'm birthday. Sorry the plane isn't bigger. <laughs> I'm sorry the plane isn't bigger. And there's just this long pause of her and this realization And she's just got that look on her face. And this is the brilliance of Kate Hudson's performance in this and in the next scene. And she's like, who didn't get cake? Oh. (laughs) And then that conversation. Still trying to put on Mm -hmm. being the bell of the ball for everybody. Yeah. Not showing her true emotions. Yeah. And then that conversation between William and Penny. And she says the line that I think hurts him the most. If only there was more of you in him. If only you, William, if only it was your personality in that, you know, rich rock star's body. You know, not yeah. not rich, you know what I mean, but he's they're they're still up and coming. If, it's basically the same line that Plexia uh, says earlier. Plexia says, <laughs> if only you were rich and a guitar player, older, taller, and so British. And, and British, and he says, then I would be a different person. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so it's the same kind of essence of the line, but you can tell that William is just like, I know something about this. And she says, well, maybe it is love. And he says, wake up. Or, yeah, she has that thing that you hear from a lot of women. It's like, you don't know what he says to me in private. Yeah. And they do have that scene at the beginning of the movie in the ice machine yes. room yeah, where he's like saying all the... The sweet things to her, you know, filling up the glass with I, ice with every point he has. But every mm-hmm. point is very surface level yeah. about her. It is. It's because really he doesn't know her. Who she really is because he doesn't know who she really is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She is as mysterious to him as to anybody else. Mm-hmm. The real name that you won't reveal, for example, is one of the things. The green that he, coat that you wear in the summertime. Yeah. yeah is about how mysterious, about just being attracted to the idea of her rather than her. Yeah. Which, hey, I understand that a little bit. I love what William says in the, back to this line with yes. him and uh, Penny. When he's, again, it's just like kind of saying what the whole movie to me is about. Like, there's not even a Penny Lane. Like, what is the real world? Like, all these rules and sayings and nicknames that's in this world. Like, none of this is real. None of this is mm-hmm. authentic. It's like, there isn't even a Morocco. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, it's great. And he says, it's like, if someone in the real world looked at me the way you just did, when and where does this real world what is, occur? What does this world exist? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am dark and mysterious and pissed off. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, maybe it is love. It's like who sold you to humble pie for 50 bucks and a case of beer? I was there. I was there. Mm. And then she pauses and she wipes a tear away from her eye. What kind of beer? And that smile, the pirate smile, uh, the line from Tiny Dancer. Penny Lane is the tiny dancer. 
You look at the lyrics of that song, she is the tiny dancer. Yeah. She's that mysterious whomever you are. I don't know who you are of that song. You know, oh, how it feels so real. But is it? (laughs) That's some of the things when I'm listening to that song. Every time I hear the song Tiny Dancer, I have to think of Penny Lane. Blue Jean Baby, L.A. Lady, Seamstress for the Band. You know, all of those things fit that character in some capacity. It does. Yeah. And think about that. Yeah. And she goes, you know, pretty eyes, which they do that close up of her eyes. And good Lord. Yes. The pirate smile. And she definitely has that. Again, going just going back to the beginning, the her her face. She has like these facial expressions that she does in this movie that just kill me. When William, uh, like quote unquote, introduces her to Russell, yeah, that moment when they're they're holding hands and she, uh, she starts that looks like su- it looks up. like such an unscripted moment yeah. when she just kind of she has her her head on her arm and she looks like she's gonna cry. She does. And she like laughs and smiles at him. Ah, she's so good. That kills me. Yeah, I mean, okay. Marsha Gay Harden is a wonderful actress, but <laughs> who talks about Marsha Gay Harden and Pollock, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress oh, for that the, year? For this year? <laughs> and okay. everybody freaking talks about Kate Hudson. Yeah. I know the Oscars are bullshit, okay? <laughs> but my gosh, I know she was young. I know she was, what, 20, 21 when she played this role. Mm-hmm. But my God, she is so good in this. She has never bested this performance. I don't know if she's ever really had a movie this good, though, either. Not that I can think of. You know, sorry to that Matthew McConaughey movie, but uh, <laughs> I, I can't even remember what it was. Down, uh, I can't even remember what the title Titles of that one is. Guy in 10 Days. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. So, I like but, the skeleton key. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, I haven't seen it, but I just don't know if she's been given a part quite this good again. And it's yeah. uh, it's a shame because... Just, uh, so yeah, that's a shame. That's because sad. she's just so damn good in this movie. And, and it happens again. I mean, after William has told the band that they're going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone while they're in the restaurant and they see Penny's just sort of... She's come to New York. She's with Led Zeppelin under the name Emily Rugburn at the plaza, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's hanging out in the restaurant. She sees them. And Leslie, who is Russell's actual ex-wife, current girlfriend, says, who is that girl? And they all go, oh, she's with me. And then yeah. Dick goes over and talks to her. And you don't know what he says exactly, but obviously it's pretty much go away. Out. We need you to leave. Yeah. We need you to leave. I mean, I get he seems to be trying to do it in some sort of compassionate way, but they're just playing that song. They're playing Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's by Elton John again. That song just kills me, too, in that moment. Not necessarily even because of the lyrics. It's just the tone of it. The feeling of it is so perfect for that sequence. And, you know, when she just runs out of there and William just gets up and runs after her. And he's looking in all the cabs, seeing if he can find her. That really gets to me. It <laughs> really yeah. gets to me. She's crying in that scene, too. Isn't she, she is. She's... She, that's the most emotion I think we ever see from her in the course of the movie, is in that scene where she really looks angry, sad, emotional in that moment. Mm-hmm. So he follows her to the plaza, and she has taken the quaaludes. Now, this quaalude scene is, I think, inspired, as I understand, was inspired by the OD scene in The Apartment. Of course, Cameron Crowe mm-hmm. is a massive Billy Wilder fan. He did a book that were basically the final interviews with Billy Wilder. Just oh, cool. absolutely worship the man. 
And you can see that. I mean, it's it's sad like that. It's, you know, she's, they just kind of, the close-ups of her feet sort of dragging on the floor. Yes. It's like, the why close-ups I... of her feet when they're they're shoving the tube down oh, her throat. Yeah. yeah. And he's just kind of looking at her. They play my Sharia more while she's having her stomach pumped, you know, because he is just so totally, even then, it's like, I love this woman, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's so powerful, but it's kind of funny too. I mean, honestly, I mean, if I'm being honest, it's, uh, but his confession to her is like, oh my gosh, why am I so scared about this? You're not going to remember this. <laughs> and then, I love you. Now, kissing her when she's stoned is Don't not do that. great, but you kind of get the sentiment in the moment, um, I guess. Yeah. I think she knows. Don't kiss about. unconscious people. No, no, definitely not. But I, I love her response though. She lets out this little, mmm. <laughs> really? <laughs> after, after he kisses her, she goes, mmm. <laughs> it's very funny. It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually... And then she just drops to the floor. <laughs> yeah. But then these closing scenes with Penny are so wonderful, too. Uh, you know, down mm. in the Central Park, she talks about how she got into the whole thing in the first place. Watching the Rolling Stones sing Midnight Rambler and Keith Richards called her up on the stage and then got her a Diet Coke with a lemon. And she never went home, is went what home. she said. Yeah. And then her real name is revealed. <gasps> what? My mom always said to marry up. That's why she named me Lady. <laughs> And she just sort of lets it out to him. It's like, this is the last thing I've held back from you. Yeah, she doesn't hesitate. She doesn't. And Lady Goodman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which sounds like something from like the Salem time. It does. (laughs) It does. (laughs) Or like Scarlet Letter, you know? (laughs) It does. It totally does. Yeah. I like this scene too, because she's more... Obviously, yeah, she's had this overdose experience, so she's not wanting to look her best. But I like how her hair throughout the whole movie has been, like I said, in those perfect little ringlets. It's a little bit, it's flatter. It's and flatter, she's yeah. kind of more herself. Uh-huh. She's holding say. on to him so tightly, you know, just yeah. holding on to his arm with both arms. It's kind of lovely. Yes. This is the one person that I can be myself with. This is my my real friend. The one person who is there for me when I need it. E- even though I've been giving parts of myself away to all these people that I've met along the way, like on the road doing this. And they've been taking advantage of me. Yeah. yeah of course, she wants to hold on to him the tightest because yeah. he's the only one that's seen her. Yeah. And then, you know, the see you back in the real world line. Then the airport. Mm-hmm. I love the airport scene. Uh, Mm -hmm. I miss being able to walk people to the gates. Right. (laughs) uh, Or pick people up at the... And leave them outside. (laughs) Something about this never really registered with me like it did in this scene either, in this viewing. Okay, so she she drops her coat and he yells, hey, lady, and she just walks walks on and and all of the other women look back at him. (laughs) It's really, (laughs) it's funny. I saw that as a really sad moment too. (laughs) It is sad, but then, you know, she gets on the plane... And she's sitting there and the plane starts to taxi and she's talking along with the stewardess, you know, (laughs) and then she just has this look on her face that just comes over her face and she just looks out the window and just, is he still there? Is he still there? (laughs) And he is, you know, and he's running along as far as he can with the plane as it's taxiing. I mean, it's a little bit movie cliche. It's a little bit corny maybe, but who cares? good Lord, that, that really hit me. It's like, 
she has this realiza- realization like this is the one person who really cares. Mm-hmm. This is the one person that truly has you know shown actual love to me in this whole experience. Yep. That's sort of the broad view, but there are a couple of sort of moments that I think are funny too that are great for her character, like the part where he. Well, I like. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, just the the hey lady part. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of made me sad in a way too, like that she doesn't respond to it because you know she's not used to her real name, yeah, who she really is, right? Because she's been acting this whole time for years. It seems like that she doesn't even recognize her own name. So yeah, that's what kind of made me sad. Yeah, that that is really sad. <laughs> that is really sad. I guess I always took it as not that she didn't necessarily recognize it, but that she just kind of ignores it. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. the way I've always taken it, but it doesn't mean I'm right. I just I, I took I, it as like, yeah, I think she the, didn't, yeah, she didn't recognize it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that definitely uh, could be part of it too. It's also a funny moment just to yell out, hey lady, it could is. be talking about any, it is. <laughs> any lady in the vicinity. <laughs> Don't call me lady. <laughs> Bring us back to right, that one. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but I also really like the scene where they're in Greenville and um, oh, yeah. the, def- the deflower. <laughs> the bath- when he's in the bathtub. He's in the bathtub. <laughs> and she just walks in and starts taking off her pants to sit on the toilet. He goes, and he goes, whoa, 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 we're going backwards here. I, I, I thought we'd, you know, back home, we'd hang out, you know, we'd get to know each other. And then I'd see. Then I would see you pee. Yeah. <laughs> And she's just like, what? But then... You're one of us now. You're part of the family. Yeah. yeah. And then the other girls come in. Your time has come. <laughs> Did Russell call? They're so... <laughs> they're so bored. They're so Alexia's bored. Like, like, let's deflower the kid. Let's deflower the kid. <laughs> um, so, and and she's just watching him. Again, her facial expressions. She's so fucking cute. And, and just... Uh. There's something <laughs> enigmatic about the moment, too. It's an interesting little scene where he's got all these girls you know jumping around and him and all he, he can do, do is, is focus look at, on, look at her focus on penny yeah. yeah and when and when she leaves it's just like he doesn't even care mm-hmm. i mean that's a pretty seminal moment for uh, a guy uh <laughs> you know and he's just like i i mean to have your first experience be that is uh wow, wow. um uh, that's uh, that's wild uh, but I know this isn't Penny, but uh, just Williams the next morning, you know, getting getting the call. And I, I, I love... What s- am I to you? What am I to you? Um, and I love this Stay because... there's underwear. I love it. And they show him walking down the hall with the laundry. Then he's yeah. going... And because earlier in the movie, he had turned the do not disturb sign around to maid service on Russell. And so now the do not disturb ever sign is is uh, duct taped to the door. And he just barely knocks on the door and is go away, go away. You know, and he's just gives him the finger through the door because by then Mm -hmm. he's I mean, he's got Ben Fong Torres from Rolling Stone just on his back. You have got to finish this piece. Yeah. You know, you have a deadline. You got to get it to us. And I don't have my key interview yet. You know, by that point, William is just sitting in that chair and he falls asleep, apparently. And they come and Russell comes out and just wakes him up. It's like, come to Cleveland. Come to Cleveland. You know, they're they're seducing him back too. Yep. You know, I mean, it's always this seduction back to this world. But before we go too far afield from Penny, my favorite moment with Penny Lane is the scene where she's dancing by herself in the auditorium in Cleveland. 
In the auditorium. Yeah. yeah some kind of dancer. <laughs> but they've just had that great show. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the song choices, of course, are, are impeccable in this movie. And here it's The Wind by Cat Stevens. And again, it's sad. I mean, it's it's her being the tiny dancer, right? I mean, there's, she's mm-hmm. spinning around and she has this rose. And it's like she's been given a rose by a prince, but there's no prince there. Aww. And so it's kind of sad. I mean, it kind of takes you back to Elaine's line at the beginning. A whole generation of Cinderella's and there's no slipper coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. Which I hadn't thought about till that ver- this very moment, um, <laughs> but it's kind of true. That moment is again like so much of what is going on with Penny is bittersweet. Yep. Just the loneliness of the moment and skating on the pieces of confetti that are on the floor. It's like she's actually completely for the only time in the movie, one hundred percent herself. I don't know. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. It is. That seems to be the part that always gets to everybody. And like, I totally, yeah, I see it. I, I don't have anything else to say. You're right. <laughs> There's something intangible about why There's it's so about effective, it. yeah. too. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of as perfect as movies get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> it was shorter in the theatrical cut. But I love that the longer version just gives it time to breathe. And it plays essentially the whole song, which is a very short song. I like the shot where she's just sitting on the floor mm-hmm. looking around and she gets such a sad look on her face. Yeah. Uh. And that, and she's holding the rose still. And mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I get all yeah, the feels. I mean, what else to say about that? But I yeah. get all the feels even when I talk about <laughs> this movie, you know? So anyway, as far as Penny goes, I mean, there's the closing interaction with Russell and the very end moment where she is going to Morocco and she sort of coyly picks up her sunglasses, uh, very Holly Golightly <laughs> style, you know, from Breakfast at Tiffany's uh, right at the very end there. She has kind of a kind of that quality to her at the very end. Um, <laughs> I also like the scene earlier in, with her and William in the car, which she says there, too. That's a good uh, line just about, again, like what the whole movie is about when she says, like, I always tell the girls never take it seriously. Yes. If you never take it seriously, you never get hurt. If you never get hurt, you always have fun. And if you ever get lonely, you just go to the record store and visit your friends. Yeah. And it's just, it's a very interesting way of saying, again, like what I see in this whole movie is that there are only a few people in the movie who really have the authenticity and the love for the music that everybody else in the movie claims to have. They claim yes. they're doing all of this for the love of the music when I only really see it in uh, in Penny Later on in Sapphire, her line at the end. Oh, Sapphire's line is beautiful. And in William. And in William, yeah. Russell used to have it. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's really sad to me about Russell. And I'd like to dive into Russell uh, maybe after we talk about William a little bit more. Because you wanted to draw it back to William a little bit. Because I think... I think there's I think there's a um, main guy. I, you gotta w- talk about William <laughs> William's always gonna come up. You know, William's yeah, he's always, always gonna, gonna come, come up in his relationships it, with everybody else. Sure. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to hit about William? Because I have something, but just, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts first. I, I just think it's great the way that they immediately take him in. I think because they recognize again that he is real. I think he's he's so pure and innocent and earnest. And he can't hide any of that about himself. 
And I think they they love that about him because it's not something mm-hmm. that they probably see a lot <laughs> in their world. And, you know, Russell says, you know, we can't help it if we like having you around, man. You know, yeah. they I think they genuinely do like him as a person, even though they mm-hmm. again, they say all these contradictory things about him all the time and not knowing if they can trust him. I think they like that genuineness that he has. Yes. You know, they call him Opie. They call him Opie. And I think... I love that. I think both Sapphire and Russell in their phone conversations with Elaine... Yes. ...are really telling the truth about Yeah. Oh, William. yeah. Because when they're always like, he's a he's a great kid. You know, he's doing a good job. We're taking care of him. They are, mm-hmm. you know. And they do genuinely like him. I, I love that. Yeah, I do love that conversation with Sapphire. Sapphire is so this is, fun. This is the maid speaking, by the way. Well, I... <laughs> she said all this stuff about, she, she, about him to her Yeah, the, well, it's just a, that, that thing where she says... He's still a virgin. Don't worry. He's still a virgin. Don't worry. He's still a virgin. And he, he loves women. He respects women. He likes women. You raised him right. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's genuine. And then she goes, you know, that's more than I've ever sent to my own parents. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> um, I like that a lot. And and then Russell's conversation, <laughs> good God, Russell's conversation with the lady. It's, it's like, the way she, that he's just immediately like. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and, and then she says, now I want you to go out there and do your best. You know? I know. Because she's, she's saying all this stuff. Things that he needs to hear, like. Don't, you know, what did she say exactly? I don't remember. Like, like don't uh, don't trample it. his dreams or mm-hmm. anything. But then she has to go right back into being a mother because she knows that he's got a big gig he's got to do. So she's got to give him encouragement. That's <laughs> I love right. That. Yeah. Go That's out there right. and do your best. I love that. Yeah, I've, I've got it here. It's before the Cleveland show. She says to him, your charm doesn't work on me. I'm on to you. Of course yeah. you like him, you know, and all oh, of yeah, these that's right. things. Yeah, yeah, of course you like him because he, you know, he idolizes you. Like, yeah. You. Mm-hmm. He'll make you as long as he makes you rich. It's like, I don't think so. (laughs) You know, I love that. (laughs) It's not too late for you to become a person of substance, Russell. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think actually really plays in to the close of the movie, too. That plays in to the final scene where he tells Rolling Stone, after all, that what William said was true. Uh For me, I think the moment that wraps up the sort of Penny and William story best is the scene on the plane, you know? The series of confessions on the plane... Yeah, you know, that start out. I just want you to know I love you all, and and then <laughs> then it becomes. I never loved you. None of us can stand you. It's like, and then then I think the bassist says finally the truth. You know, <laughs> and Dick says like, oh, I really loved you guys. Yeah, you really were there for me. Uh, after Marna left me, and they're like three of them were like, uh, I slept, uh, I with, slept with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and at the beginning of this scene, every single t- I, I said that the only jump scare that ever still gets me even after i've watched a movie a thousand times is the one in nightmare on elm street i always forget about this one the a jump scare. The bang when the plane starts okay. shaking yeah. <laughs> makes me jump every time it's it's just so unexpected i mean it comes like right in the middle of a line and I, it's just like it always makes me jump but those um confessions are just so funny and at first and then you know, I, I just I once uh, ran over a man in Dearborn, Michigan. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> just like, um, I mean, it's not funny that that happened, like, but 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 it's but it's just kind of like these weird confessions out of the blue, and mm-hmm. and then William, you know, just yells. Oh, he lays into him. Groupie, all that mm-hmm. groupie. She was a band aid. All she did was love your band, and you used her, and you. Th- 
threw her away, but I love her. She almost died last night while you were with Bob Dylan. The way he says mm-hmm. Bob Dylan with such disdain is is yeah. uh, <laughs> is pretty funny actually. And but I love her. I love her. And then you know, of course, Silent Ed gives his <laughs> one line: "I'm gay." And then the plane immediately best itself. character in the whole movie, Ed Valancourt. Yeah. Ed, Silent Ed Valancourt. I love. Okay, so Dick's line where he's like talking to a bunch of the fans at the front of the stage says, you know, Russell and Jeff, you know, they get a lot of the attention, but I think the heart and soul of this band is in Silent Ed Valancourt. I mean, it's it's a moment that was cut out of the theatrical, but it's just one of those moments that's just like, it's probably improvised and, you know, it's but it's just a perfect little moment that's really funny that has nothing to do with anything. It's just entertaining and funny. Most of the interviews oh. with the band were not, were, were also cut out, you know, so like when the whole thing, oh, really? the whole thing about where he tries to interview Ed and Ed doesn't say anything. <laughs> Yep. And then the bass player says, nodding. It's like, what ingredient do you bring to the band? I'm the bass player. Yeah, but what do you bring to the band? Uh, the bass? <laughs> if you weren't there, what would be missing? The bass. The bass? <laughs> I do like the part of the plane crash scene, the almost plane crash scene, too, when uh, the door flies open and you can hear the pilots are praying. Saying the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That moment obviously is seminal. That ends up being how he starts his article. Um, you know, flying high over Tupelo, Mississippi, and we're all about to die is his mm. first line. And Russell, as they're walking in, as they're all dis- so distant from each other, walking through the airport, and says, "Write what you want." So he does, and he gets on the phone mm-hmm. with Lester Bangs. Oh God! I mean, that that moment is magical. Because he's gone to Rolling is this, Stone. Wait, which? Okay, so this is There's after one the plane phone crash. call that I wrote down. Okay, so William has flown back to San Francisco uh, to the Rolling Stone headquarters. They know he's a kid, and you know the fact checker is all like, "It's going to take forever to get through this research because it's all written on little bits of paper, and it's a puff piece." You know, Rain Wilson, <laughs> as <laughs> as. Uh, as one yeah. of the editors at Rolling Stone, you know, he's got his little cigarette holder and stuff. I love all of those little things. You know, some of these are like before they were stars moments, but he's just a kid. You know, they're, oh, baby, you know what? Ben sees him. <laughs> it's great. And, and he sits down, and he tries to write and he, and he calls Lester and Lester says, oh, man, you made friends with him. Yeah. Everything that he warned okay. him about. And this is the one. If I can get the clips to work, I'm going to put in this clip. <laughs> right. We're having some trouble getting our clips to be able to import into our software right now. So that's why we haven't this had clips the past couple clips. weeks. This movie needs clips. We got movie... to figure out how to get them for yeah. this one especially. So <laughs> if, if there are no clips in this, you'll know why Ugh. I'm doing imitations. Okay. <laughs> is this the the one where he's talking about being uncool? Being uncool. This is the... Okay, the, this is the one I like too, yeah. And he calls him and he says, I w- I'm just glad you were home. And he says, of course I'm home. I'm uncool. I'm uncool. Yeah. <laughs> and then I wrote down the other line. You probably did too. The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Yeah. And that is or a direct... Or had like good looking people got no spine. <laughs> I think like there's a particular line that this draws back to, of course, is Russell saying, just make us look cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in a way, Russell there is even kind of admitting that they're uncool. 
And so he writes the piece uh, with this advice from Lester where he says, you need to be unmerciful. You need to be truthful and just lay it out there. You saw what you saw. You got to write the best piece you can based on that. You can't base it on these feelings you have for these people. Because I think that's something else that the band, especially Jeff, I think, recognized in him. Yeah. The, how he could be dangerous. Like, even though they did like him and he's a good person and good kid, he's very much an observer. Uh huh. He sees everything. That's a, that's a line <laughs> they, that Russell they says. They don't. To him. Yeah. yeah. They always kind of say, like, we can't say this with, you know, the writer here. It's like, but what about all those other little moments? Well, what's saw. so funny is because Jeff is like, I'm not going to say this with the writer here. And then he is the yeah. one who cannot shut up talking to the writer. Oh, yeah. During the Saying whole movie. Bullshit. Saying I, I, absolute bullshit, though. Some of those things are so funny. He some some of those lines nothing. are so funny. Rock and roll can save the world. Um, <laughs> the chicks are great. Um, <laughs> the, he's having an interview with him on the bus where he's just oh, like love talking about it's brains. So funny! I try to turn it's my like, brain off. <laughs> like, what are you saying? And, and it's like, and the whole thing about popularity is kind of a response to the whole grunge movement, you know, where it's like we don't want to be popular, you know. And we so, don't want to be popular. We we do this for the fans, not for the critics. And yet. In the scene where they're arguing mm-hmm. about, you know, getting the quotes from Rolling Stone about what William actually had to say about them, Jeff Beebe is wearing a t-shirt with his face and his name exactly. on it. Exactly. Exactly. I, I saw... Like, I, come on. I had never really picked up on that, and then I just laughed. I wrote that one down, too. Because, I mean, I've seen yeah. this movie a million times, but you're always picking up more details because there are just so many details yeah. in this movie. And so he's wearing a Jeff Beebe t-shirt with his face on it. And he's saying, yes. and he's yelling to the air, is it that hard to make us look cool? He's making us sound like a douche. Like, I didn't really say all that stuff. The chicks are great. We're all about, we're not about popularity. We're about <laughs> the music. Well, like, no, I, you're not. I love the line. It says, I, and Russell's, the, and the Russell says nothing too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I love the line too. Because okay, Russell's laying down on like a park bench, and yeah. um, Jeff says, "Rock and roll can save the world. The chicks are great. I sound like a dick." And he says, "You are a dick." <laughs> he just says it under his breath. It's so funny. I've always yeah. loved that moment. And it's just, "Wait, I never said I was a golden god, <laughs> or did <Yeah>. I?" <laughs> <laughs> we have proof of it at the beginning of this episode, right? Or he says in that scene too, Russell does um, like something about maybe you know, we just don't see ourselves the way other, other people, people see us. us. Yeah, which none of us do. Which is the truth. Yeah, exactly. None of us That's do. That's the truth. Truth for everybody. You know, William is unmerciful. And then, you know, getting his story denied. I mean, when he's picked up by his sister in, at the airport... He looks like he hasn't slept in about 12 years. Mm-hmm. He's got these massive circles <laughs> under his eyes. And she says it, you know, you look terrible. And as I understand it, this was a really exhausting shoot for Patrick Fugit. And this was his first movie, really, as I understand it. He was really raw. He didn't really know what he was in for. Uh, there were some days where he was just like pumped up on energy. You know, like there's scenes early on where he's where he's. He's leaving the Black Sabbath concert, you know, and he's pointing out to everyone, hey, Frosty, and yeah. hey, Red Dog, hey, Red Dog, all that stuff. Cameron Crow on the commentary says something like, yeah, Patrick was just like pumped up on <laughs> something during this, and his energy was through the roof, and it was, we actually had to constrain it a little bit. 
um, to get this to happen. And you can see that in the scene, but then you see it towards the end. I Penny mean, comes up to him like, be cool, be cool. Be cool, be cool. Yeah, exactly. And that, that feels like that feels like a moment of improvisation, you know, to like, me. That down. always has felt like that. But those scenes where, you know, like after the deflowering scene where he's asleep on the chair outside the hotel room, he looks like walking death at that point. Mm-hmm. And then again here at the end, it's just this poor kid. And it really feels like Patrick Fugit is, or Fugit, I don't know how to say his name precisely, uh. is exhausted. I mean, truly yeah. exhausted beyond his limits that he's ever felt before. Um, and I think it works it's for the movie. It's also the frustration. Yeah, it totally works for the movie then because yeah. the character is getting very exhausted and frustrated mostly. Yeah. Um, especially with Russell, you know, trying to get the interview. Yeah. We'll do it in the next city. The next city. Yeah. <laughs> Just sit back and relax. Enjoy the ride, man. And he's like... We really need to do this interview, yeah. though. And, you know, that so, yeah, m- moment, you know, it's like, I'll take you where Anita says to him, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. Where do you want to go? And they go home. <laughs> you know, oh. that's all he wants <laughs> is to go home. And I love this little sort of moment between Anita and Elaine, too, because he just sort of shoves I, Elaine into favorite, her. Yeah. <laughs> and they He's start like, hugging and uses a suitcase to like shove them close together. I love that yeah. moment. And they're so awkward at first, hugging each other, and then and then the smile, the the look on Anita's face when she's like, "Yeah, I really did miss my mom." Yeah. You know, one of those things. And then Elaine says, "I forgive you," and she says, "I didn't, <laughs> I didn't apologize. apologize." And they start laughing. <laughs> I, I really do like that. I think that uh-huh. you really sense the reconciliation that's happening there. And then Penny enters the picture briefly again because Russell wants to connect with her. And she gives William's address because they live in the same town. And he knows that. So that's something that he could be fooled by, right? Mm-hmm. I think this scene between Russell and William is kind of the ending of the relationship between Penny and William, though. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. When Russell says, you know. We both wanted to be with her, but she wanted us to be together. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. love that. That's a good line. It really it's is. It's kind of a thing where I think maybe she knew that it wouldn't work out with her and William yeah. if they wanted to try that because she, she wasn't herself yet. She needed some time, you know, away from what she had been doing for all these years. You know, it, that's why she does go to Morocco on her own and not, not with William. But the fact that Russell goes also makes me wonder if maybe he really does love her. But, you know, and at the same time, she's like, I don't want this. I don't want to be hurt again. That's her way of letting go of both of them, but not in a mean way. Just saying like, no. Yeah. This isn't right for any of us. Well, Cameron Crowe apparently still has a friendly relationship with the real Penny Lane. Obviously, she's an amalgamation of several people, but Mm -hmm. the one she was most based on, they still have a positive friendship, apparently. So, which is cool. I don't think that this would be the end of any of their relationships, like, entirely. No. You know? If if these were real people, obviously, not just characters. I think it's just not the right time for her. Like I said, I think she just needs some time to herself to figure out who she really is and what she really wants to be. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, she's still obviously so young. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know what I read, too, in a thing with Patrick Fugit. 
he said that there was an, an idea with him and Cameron Crowe that actually William and Palexia would get together <laughs> if this had gone on. Yeah, I, c- I could see that too because, you know, Palexia has an interesting moment with him when, yes. before she goes off with Humble Pie where she actually gets a little emotional. Deep Purple. Yeah. Oh, Deep Purple. Yeah, you're right. You're she right. goes to England with she Deep Purple. She goes to England with Deep Purple. But that's an interesting moment, too, where mm-hmm. she kind of lets her facade fall just the slightest bit. It's a nice moment. William is almost kind of like a Penny Lane at times in this movie, where his innocence and his purity really brings out the good in everybody that he meets, too. It does. The same thing that Palexia says about Penny. Well, and that comes up in an important scene with Russell that... You know, when we talk about Russell, I think that is something I really want to look at is is something that comes out in that conversation. Okay. okay. Who are we talking Here, about? Yeah. Talking about William? <laughs> we are we are kinda of, this is probably gonna lead naturally into talking about Russell, yeah. isn't it? But yeah. but I think this closing scene is so funny. So this is the famous Russell Hammond <laughs> and walks in and says, So is uh Penny here is she here? Who? Uh Anita? You know, and then Zoe Deschanel is just that little pose. That little pose that she does. Yeah, it's so cute. That's like one of those moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like Zoe Deschanel became a star with that moment. I mean, it's just it's so great. I love it. Where am I? Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Then he sort of slowly dawns on him that he's in William's house because he sees the photos. And now, one thing I never noticed before is that. As he's walking towards William's room, the music that is playing is a classical guitar and piano rendition of Tiny Dancer. Yeah. You didn't notice that? <laughs> this was the first time I had really dawned on me that that's what the music was. Mm-hmm. So again, it's that spirit of Penny being there with them, that she's the one who brings them together. And, you know, obviously Penny, not Penny, but Tiny Dancer is a healing moment in the movie for the band. It's a bonding moment. And my favorite thing here is let's do this interview right. He asks the same question. He's always, he's started to ask him every time, what do you love about music? And Russell says, and he gets into it. He turns his chair around. He turns that chair backwards. Yeah. He just sort of leans in and says, to begin with, everything. And that is in direct opposition to uh, an earlier conversation. And I love that moment for Russell. It's the why for him. It's the returning to finding that why. And it's easy to lose that why, you know, in a lot of ways. At first, before I watched this again, I was wondering if I was going to have a strong connection with it, maybe as you do, just because I don't have the same kind of connection. Sure. To music, sure. I mean, yeah, I like music or whatever, and I I know so I know what I like is pretty much all that I'm into. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have the same. It doesn't have the same kind of um, emotional thing for me as it does for a lot of people. I just I don't know. So um, I thought I wouldn't be able to connect with it on that level, but I definitely connected to it on the the character level. And just yes. you can maybe you can replace music with anything, anything that you're passionate about. You know, in this movie. Absolutely. I think that Mm -hmm. is 100% true. In fact, I've kind of related. Russell's character is interesting for a lot of ways. I mean, let's... I I think we have kind of talked the relationship that he has with Penny kind of all the way through. But some of the other things that I find really interesting and kind of sad about Russell is, you know, obviously he and Jeff were close. They were good friends. It's like, I grew up with these guys. But right off the bat, 
when we meet the band, uh, you sense the tension between those two. Hey, I'm incendiary yeah. too, man. Then he's talking with Red Dog, and Red Dog yeah. is only talking to Russell and says, hey, man, we're Allman Brothers family, man. You know, it's like all this that he's <laughs> saying. And there's a look on Jeff Beebe's face. Jason Lee, as Jeff Beebe, I think, yeah. is both he's hilarious, but there's something more going on too there's yeah. that just the look on his face of like well red dog says something like you should come hang out with us say, yeah they say they say hi to you you know they only to russell only to russell to anybody else yeah yeah and it's like oh yikes and gosh jeff i feel for him he, again <clears throat> he's a facade you know this oh, yeah. is this is you know where it goes into his whole long tirade about i don't think anyone can really explain rock and roll <laughs> maybe pete townsend <laughs> Um, yeah. Which is one of my favorite lines. So this we haven't really... gotten to my favorite line yet. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Um, <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> the chicks are great. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just kidding. What is it? Uh, that's no, it's not. It's with Russell. So when it's with Russell. Russell. Okay, okay. So there are a couple of things that that relationship. I think the radio station interview. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. Which was cut out of the theatrical, and the fact that this was cut out of the theatrical makes you go. That blows this my mind. Scene this is, is so missed. Yeah, it's so important to the, especially their relationship. I mean, it's so funny because I mean, obviously they <laughs> they go and do this radio interview. The dude is high as a kite, and <laughs> he's from Tenacious D. So. Oh yeah, oh it <laughs> is so him. Lit. It is it is him. I was like, I recognize <laughs> this guy. Who is that? It's like uh, that's right. It's it's uh, the other guy. <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> yeah. from tenacious d so he's hilarious he's so funny he's like <laughs> listen with your mind as they materialize on the night circus jeff it's so great uh, bb <laughs> <laughs> that's bb um but yeah that conversation is like so we're really talking here right so why do you wait until now to say anything nice about me because I tell you every time you nail it. Yep. And it's like everyone pays you compliments. It's not my fucking job to kiss your fucking ass. (laughs) That's right. That's the one. It says, well, my ass is in need of a good kissing right now. And it's like, and then Dick comes up and says, well, actually, it's my job, and I think you're all brilliant. You're all geniuses. (laughs) You're all geniuses. And as a parting parting thought, smegma. Um, and then they hand it over to the to the bass player feces, feces. <laughs> because obviously you know they've sworn on the air so now they're just letting it all yes. out um because the dj's asleep so they're have yeah so they're having fun in the moment but also revealing a lot. Tr- there's truth in jest yeah the tension's palpable as funny as that mm-hmm. scene is you can really feel you know russell and jeff they really do have that Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, love-hate relationship. Oh, to go to the t-shirt scene. That's where it's at. <laughs> the t-shirt scene. Oh, gosh, yeah. the t-shirt scene. Um, that comes a little bit after what I think is the key scene for Russell, okay? Oh. And that's at the hotel, okay? They're at the pool after oh, the radio man. interview. This is where William comes out 
and he has his tape recorder. What do you love about music? And he's like, turn that thing off for a minute. Just make us. You look feel cool. so bad for him the whole time that he keeps denying <sighs> him the damn interview. Just talk to the kid. <laughs> I know. Just talk to this poor kid. I know. Yeah, what he says here is very revealing. Very revealing in so many ways because, um, and, and he's offered a little bit before, you know, like even at the Black Sabbath concert uh, at the beginning, he says he that whole thing where he's talking about Marvin Gaye and the stuff you leave out and the woo. And um, mm-hmm. it's such a cool little moment. And uh, that, that was not in the theatrical either. I haven't watched the theatrical in a while, but... I love that scene, too, when they're uh, they're walking up to the stage in that. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you just barely see the lights. You see the, the arrows. Arrows on the, on the stage. Yeah. Uh, love I love that, that scene. I love the way they it's, shot. And as we know from Spinal Tap, it's nice to have arrows on the floor. <laughs> if you're going to get to the stage, point us in the right direction. Okay? Yes. Uh, anyway, but this sequence, I mean, just make us look cool. I mean, which is a line I use all the time with you, right? Uh, when we're talking about editing, we joke with each other. Just make us sound cool. Um, so hopefully we will. Hopefully we do. Hopefully we do uh, sound cool. I try. I, we, we, yeah, me too. Me too. We try. Um, no. Michelle edits many more of the episodes than I do. So <laughs> but she does a great job making us sound cool. Thank you. Yeah. This is where he says, the uh, you're dangerous because you listen. Most people mm-hmm. wait to talk. And he says, listen. A lot of these people have girlfriends back home. A lot of them have wives. And some of the people you meet on the road, and then, of course, they show Penny. Cuts to Penny, mm-hmm, yeah. Are pretty amazing people. Then he says, and I think he means it. He says, like you. I really like that. Because he's one of the people, like Penny, who can bring out the good in people. And yes. Russell's is figuring that out about him. Mm-hmm. He's bringing out the good in him, Russell. Absolutely, and he's and, also the bad, <laughs> and also the bad, and also the bad. That's, he's admitting that, things. That's a little later. It, it, he starts, but is here, it, well, right now, this is where he starts admitting. He starts saying things like, "I'm better in a lot of ways. Yeah. I'm past them musically, but yeah. you know, the bigger we get, the bigger their houses get. So much of what is out there anymore doesn't even sound like music to me. It sounds like lifestyle maintenance." He's like, don't write that down, which is a great Every line. time he reveals a little bit of truth, it's yeah. don't write that down. Don't write that down. We didn't graduate high school. Don't write that down. Right. And then there's that other thing here. This is the line that I think is so telling about Russell. And he says, I used to hear the sounds of the world yes. and it sounded like music, but I don't hear it anymore. That is so profound and so powerful to me because, okay, there is an inherent danger in being paid and depending on and having to do the thing that you love. Yes. I'm not completely dependent on like the writing thing. It still feels more like a hobby and a fun side hustle. But sometimes it's like, oh, I got to hit that deadline and it's hard to Mm do. But that's a little lesser in here. But for me, being a music teacher, being paid to do something that I've been doing since I was six years old, it's challenging sometimes. Yeah. Uh, and before that, I was paid to do music as a church music director, right? I know it sounds like, oh, poor baby, you get to do the thing that you love for your job, but no. there is a challenge to it. There is a balance to it, and it's not easy to strike. I have compassion for Russell in this. 
because yeah. there is that sense of like I get home from teaching music or you know doing a gig or something like that and I don't even want to listen to music I just want to listen to a book or a podcast or uh, do something else you know that doesn't have mm-hmm. to do, I mean or I write mostly horror stuff it's like I just want to watch a movie that's not a horror movie and as much as I love horror and love writing about it there are challenges there I'm probably admitting things that just like Russell to the people that I should not be admitting things to, you know, but uh, (laughs) not you, but uh, our audience. But I'd say this by way of just, you know, sort of mild personal confession, not as and understanding where Russell's coming from. And I think, you know, if we dig deep a little bit, we may all sort of realize (laughs) some of those things as well. For Um, sure. I thought that was a pretty universally known thing that it's, it's tough to actually get paid to do the thing you love. Yeah. There's no real balance there. I think there's a line that Dick has later on. Is it Dick or Jimmy Fallon when they're talking about, you know, getting more money, you know, for gigs. Yes. You know, if we get a plane or like on the, 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 the gross subject of money. Yeah. Or whatever. It's like, well, I mean, that's kind of part. You get into the business. That's going to mm-hmm. be part of it now, too. It can't all be about the love. You got to make money, too. You owe the record company money yeah, you, for this tour that you're on right now. Yeah, because, I mean, they, they ran out on. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for goodness sake, Russell getting electrocuted on stage. I mean, that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> and so during that whole conversation with Jimmy Fallon, you know, Dennis Hope, uh, you are like, Dennis he's Hope, not yeah. wrong. He's yeah. not wrong. I mean, Dick is not a very good manager, which probably brings us to the them. T-shirt scene, you know? Yeah. <laughs> What's that? He probably cares more about them than than oh, Dennis Hope, but oh, he's, yeah. they have There's to no know problem. this stuff. They they have to know the business. Again, just like the, the gross part of actually getting into the business of it, you have to treat it like a, a business. Yeah. <laughs> it's not can't always be about the love and the passion, unfortunately. Unfortunately, no. And, you know, that's why bands usually don't last very long. They make it really big. I mean, you think about the Beatles. They were 10 years and they were gone. John Lennon and Paul McCartney were probably as close as two people can be. And it largely broke up because they couldn't work together anymore. Wow. I mean, and the fact that the Rolling Stones, I mean, the Rolling Stones have broken up a lot. I mean, they've gotten together yeah. <laughs> and they've broken up a, a lot, you know. Now, we're recording this not long after the, the news of Charlie Charlie Watts passing away from the Stones. So, Oh, um, I didn't hear about yeah, that. Yeah, but, uh, oh, you didn't hear about that? Yeah. So mm-hmm. the drummer for the Rolling Stones, yeah, having Aww. passed away. Um, but uh, having read Keith Richards' autobiography, this feels very authentic. You know, these breaking up and getting back together moments <laughs> feel very authentic. Yeah. You know, just the tensions of the band seem like a universal kind of thing. But I like how in the t-shirt scene, how Russell just immediately wants to talk about it. Jeff wants to be like, no, no, man, there's not a problem. And he's like, no, there's obviously a problem. Let's talk about it. You love this t-shirt. Exactly. You know? <laughs> this t-shirt is everything that you want to say it's like how can you tell i'm just one of the out of focus guys but he's right russell is very right Mm -hmm. like why hasn't he changed or why hasn't he tried to do anything if he recognizes that there is this tension between him and jeff and he's willing to confront it but jeff isn't until he pretty much tells him to say it yeah. yeah, I guess because they have to continue touring together, you know. Yeah, they do. They do. They, I mean, they're kind of. They can't break up. They they can't break up until the tour is over. 
basically. Yeah. They're Black Sabbath special guests <laughs> for the duration, <laughs> right? There's some lines here, you know, like Russell says, didn't we all get into this to avoid responsibility? But that's not going to be the case because there is going to be that unsavory business side of things. And it's like, you know, this all happened because when you allowed you allowed Dick to manage us because he's your friend, you know, I mean, that all comes out. And then, hey, they have a good night in the Cleveland gig. Right. And they're all like. Yeah, bring him in. We'll uh, send him out of town on rail because, you know, Dick's our guy. And, you know, they love each other in that moment because they just had this sort of moment of elation in this great gig that they haven't really had much on this tour up to this point. So there is that, oh, we're, we're good again. We're bad again. We're good again. We're bad again. Yeah. But after the T-shirt of scene, of course, we have probably the most famous sequence of the movie where they go, where Russell... The be- best part, though, is when uh, William comes back into frame and grabs the T-shirt. Yes. And <laughs> into his bag. <laughs> yeah, he's doing that a lot he's more. Collect- he's been collecting souvenirs this whole time. I love it. Yeah, he's do- he does that a lot more in this extended cut than he does in the theatrical. Really? Um, where they <laughs> just show more of the stuff that he's collected on this tour. Because he thought he was going to be gone for what a few days and he's been gone yeah. for weeks and weeks and weeks but he just like grabs the ashtray and that's everything mm-hmm. off of the, the maid's cart <laughs> yeah hey i've been doing the same thing yeah. i'm gonna lie it's it's, it's <laughs> great stuff. i mean it's this is the first time out in the world you know yeah uh, so this is really something yeah this scene um you're talking about the one and was real topeka people real topeka the... people let's go find something real it's like you. It's like you know line. everything about us. <laughs> and this is where um, William reveals a little bit more of himself, too, because, you know, he talks about how his dad leaves a heart, had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. My sister and my and this is stuff we know. My mom and my sister don't get along and she left me all her albums and she went off to be a stewardess. And it's good to talk. And it's just like he hardly has said anything. It's like, OK, yeah, you, you're it. real. Yeah. Um, that's the only thing he ever says about himself to them. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's like. Russell has had it after that whole thing and he obviously gets drunk and he (laughs) having a blast you know playing drums while the kids playing the guitar in the (laughs) garage and you know just this party and there's as I hear there's acid in the beer with the red cups he just downs it just downs it (laughs) he's on acid how do I know when it's kicked in (laughs) and then we have no you missed my favorite line what is it (laughs) it's when he's talking to the kid in his room He's like, you're real, like all this stuff, and yours real. And then the kid just says, "Want to see me feed a mouse to my pet snake?" Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the way he says yes, that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, there's just a whole bunch of like sort of this bullshit philosophy that he's doing. It's like in nine years, it's going to be 1984. Think about that. You know, um, <laughs> it's just this crazy bullshit philosophy. He's like, I am a golden god. Of course. It's like, can I have that bitch and belt, man? Yeah, take it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it's like, I dig music. I'm on drugs. Um, <laughs> then, Russell, let's come down and we'll go home. It's like, okay. Let's work on that last line. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love how he just kind of says, okay. And he's about to walk off the roof oh, and they start, they start yelling, jump. And he jumps in the pool. And then he doesn't come back. Up. I'll save you, Russell. Um, that's, <laughs> that's fun stuff. But, okay. So... Mm-hmm. This this sequence too, and then we can talk about, really... and then we can talk about the tiny dancer scene from another person's perspective, which is really interesting. That you can That's see true. it from all these different characters, definitely perspectives. I love how well, the scene starts too. You can hear the music like over the the faces yeah. of 
the quote unquote real people yeah. as they're like kind of waving goodbye. It's a really beautiful looking shot. It really is. Um, but even before that, I mean, there's a moment here. Okay. So Russell emotionally just turns on a dime. He's just sitting there. Uh, Dick is talking to him. All right, we're going to go get on the bus. Like, okay, sure. Then he says, what What about him? He's like, he's like how do we know you're not a cop? And then Dick says... He's probably still on drugs. He's still on drugs, I know. But even <laughs> before that, because he said, hey, come on up to my room. We'll do that interview. Then he goes up to his room. Go away! Go away! You know, I mean, it's just um, moment to moment, it feels like. And honestly... Most of the time when he seems to be in a bad mood is when he's with Penny in his room. Mm -hmm. It's very weird. And so we don't really know what's going on there. Or I think he's scared maybe to talk to William. Especially as the the movie goes on. Because he knows he's going to be really honest with him, I think. I'm in too truthful a mood. Yeah, exactly. Is one of the things he says. (laughs) His emotions just seem to turn on a dime. He goes from being uh, right there and just loving this kid, you know, come with us, be Mm -hmm. with us, and to just go away, go away, you know. It's like, don't worry, he only believes half of what he says. Which half? That's a kind of a telling line, too. Yeah, you're right about the tiny dancer scene here, because Russell just sitting there with his blanket over him, because he's drying off still, um, <laughs> and drying out. <laughs> yeah. All of them are just like, mm. and then the bass player just starts singing, Jesus Larry. Freaks. Larry. Mm-hmm. Out in the streets, mm-hmm. handing tickets out for God. But it's yeah. not right in the movie, though. <laughs> Huh? They they skip a verse before they, the, they, they skip, the, they the skip, chorus. That always annoys yeah. me. <laughs> they skip the pre-chorus, yeah. But, but from yeah. their perspective, especially Jeff, really Russell and the rest of the band, this moment plays out as a, oh yeah, that's why we're all together yes. here right now is this love of music. Even Jeff and Russell, you know, feel a connection, it seems. And obviously all of the Band-Aids are with them and there's just sort of a joyous moment of connection you know mm-hmm. you know and this is honestly one of the lines that the quote-unquote real penny lane criticizes because she says that would never happen it's romanticized <laughs> and it's like and you know what yeah it is romanticized but it's a but. visual representation of probably the point he's trying to make yeah cameron crow is in the movie so it is it, makes, it is it, i'm fine with it I am too. Right? I, sure. I, I love. I love. This <laughs> I love. I mean, I love the scene. I don't care. It's iconic scene, but it's also just the way it's done. And it almost didn't get into the movie. They were like, "You're running behind schedule. You got to cut that scene. It's not needed." Mm. You know. And Cameron Crowe was like, "Oh, we're gonna shoot this scene." And it took a long time. I mean, there's a lot of coverage in, in this scene because they basically had to pick each angle, sing the entire song. You know, <laughs> however many takes yeah. it took to get it right, you know, and then get everybody's coverage, right? That's um, true. <laughs> so it's one of those kinds of scenes. It took a while, but it's so important and he needed it and he knew it. Absolutely. So anyway, by the time we get to the end here, Russell and Jeff are, after Russell has called Rolling Stone and said, it's not true, there is this conversation between Jeff and Russell backstage in sort of that cafeteria setting. Oh, when they're both kind of like, yeah. like, did we really hate each other that did much? Did we really <laughs> hate each other that much? And 
and he says because that's after the plane crash and everything too right or that almost like you keep telling a plane crash it's not yeah the plane crash i mean we kind of we kind of covered the plane crash but i mean that plane crash it's is is it doesn't crash obviously but people know what we're talking about yes but jeff has this line i'm the you they get when they can't get you Yes. You know, and they kind of attempt to hug. They attempt to do this bro hug and they and they <laughs> can't even get that right and knock over the soda. And <laughs> oh, well, because there was one thing, too, in the I think it was in the T-shirt scene is another example of the inauthenticity of the, the world is when Jeff is saying, you know, like we said from the beginning, you know, that I was going to be the front man and you were going to be the, 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 guitar the guitar player with, with Mystique. Mystique yeah. It's like, so you planned out like what your personalities were going to be. That's what's authentic about uh-huh. that. Yeah, that's <laughs> Jeff exactly kinda, right. Jeff kind of plays into it more than, than Russell does, even though Jeff talks a big game about it being for the fans. Like we play for the, fa- no, Russell says we play for the fans, not the critics. Right. But he's the one who first calls him the enemy. Like a rock writer. The enemy, yeah. The enemy. And Jeff, Even of though, course, is the one that won't shut up to him. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying like, like they, they both have their perceptions of the band and like maybe what they wanted to get out of it is very different. I think so. I'm just trying to understand their uh, their relationship. You know, I think it's one of genuine friendship that it's just like it's just been wedged apart by this yeah. jealousy. And it's really the, only um, the jealousy is really only the way. from... Yeah, it's the jealousy is really from Jeff's end. I mean, I don't get the impression that Russell is particularly jealous of Jeff. No, he thinks he's superior to him. Yeah, basically. I mean, it's just it's just a fact of Russell. You know, he's just a better musician, really, than any of them. And it's tough on him because he's like, should I stick with these guys? I feel obligated to them. And that's not a good reason to stick around necessarily, you know? So it's a tough situation that Russell's in too. I don't envy that because, I mean, he feels a connection with these guys. He grew up with them, he said, right? They've spent 15 years doing this Mm -hmm. or whatever, and they're just starting to really have something happen. That's why they're almost famous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, this is their almost famous tour. Yeah, uh, but I do like that scene in the backstage area when they're, yeah. they they reconcile. It's a very sweet way for them to reconcile, like just to recognize that maybe things weren't right from the start. But also maybe they weren't ever as bad as they made them out to be. Yeah, and that they should have said something a long time ago if they had problems. Yeah, yeah sometimes that's the thing. And to some extent, I think part of that could be a guy thing, you know, between two guys. <laughs> I think there's a lot. Uh, I think it's even more challenging for some guys to do that. But then this conversation between Sapphire and Russell is kind of beautiful. Talking about Penny Kind of beautiful. It's it is beautiful. It's perfect. And it says, you know, she says, we all know what you did to her. And we all know what yeah. you did to him. And Penny knows too. Penny knows what you did to him. Mm-hmm. And then this line, you know, 20 years from now, we'll remember her. Not much else. Much else. Mm-hmm. And then she comments because a couple of groupies, <laughs> and these are really groupies, you know, walk by. Not band-aids, no. Not band-aids, they're groupies. they're groupies. Hi. And Russell just sort of nods, acknowledging them and says, what is it with these new girls? None of them use birth control and they eat all the steak. <laughs> um, they don't even know what it means to be a fan, to love some silly piece of music or some band so much it hurts okay feruza bulk 
Why is she not like the biggest star I love in the world now? She's so great. And this performance and her and Kate Hudson in this movie, I mean, Fruza Balk's role especially is pretty small, but her yeah. moments are so good. She's that... been, yeah, she's been so different in mm-hmm. in this scene than she has been for the rest of the movie. Maybe just a little bit in that scene where she's talking to Liam's mother. Mm-hmm. But her in, in this scene at the end with Russell is so different than the person we saw before. But again, it's it's the truth of the person. It's where, yes. you know, it's revealing that she's kind of an observant person too, like William is, because yeah. she knows what's going on in this world. And she's willing to tell the truth to Russell. I love the look on Russell's face when she's saying that about like being a fan. Because he's finally getting it, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's taken him this long to finally get it. Yeah. She's also funny, too, throughout the movie. She is. She's very series. funny. She runs into the wall. And she's, yeah. <laughs> she's chasing after the bus. She's perfect. Yeah, she's wonderful. I like how everyone I, gets their little moment like this in this movie. Everyone. And in all honesty, we could pick every single character and talk about each single one of them thoroughly. <laughs> Um, but I think the one more that we haven't talked about thoroughly that probably should is be Elaine. is Elaine. Yes. Now, <laughs> within the past couple years, something has happened that I never expected to happen. I you got relate, older, Brian. <laughs> yeah, I got older. I My children <laughs> got older. I have a 15-year-old son, which freaks me out. <laughs> I relate. God help me. You are Elaine. To Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, in my article, I started each sort of section of the article on F This Movie with Once Upon a Time, I was William Miller. This is my experience. Once Upon a Time, I was like Russell Hammond. Once Upon a Time, I was like Penny Lane. Now, I am Elaine Miller. Good God. I, <laughs> the, I Seeing this in 2000, I never thought... I would ever relate to Elaine. <laughs> Can we just start with the one thing that confuses me about her okay. is that op- that opening scene with when Anita is talking about all the things that she's banned from their house and how like no rock mm-hmm. and roll and why then does she let William go? I think it has to do probably with a fear of losing him too, you know, because you see the deep bond that she has with her son mm-hmm. right from the start. She has a bond with Anita too. I think it's by that it's point different. in the movie is she is just <laughs> like, there has been this level of rebellion that Williams never had. And so now William gets into rock and roll and she knows it. And she's like, it's not going to do me any good to push another one of my kids away. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she says, why do all my children leave me? (laughs) She essentially (laughs) says that, you know, it's like, because they're growing up and they're supposed to, that's way it works in life, you know? But I think this is telling you, you she is a a widow. Yeah. So there's that element to it. I think I feel for her so much when she's on the phone with him at one point, Uh, when she says, I'm supposed to have three more years with you. Right. Yeah, you just kind of feel, even though, like, obviously, I'm not a parent, you know, I don't, I don't know what that's like, but you sure. kind of feel is like I'm supposed to have you until you're 18. You're right. not supposed to leave me until then. You just, you feel that love and that not wanting to let go, even yeah. though she has been. I do admire her first for letting him go to the concert. Yes, at first, the the Black Sabbath concert. Black Sabbath concert. I mean, she obviously she has her commentary. Uh, yeah, the you know the Cinderella no slipper coming. Uh, <laughs> Like, <laughs> <laughs> don't take drugs don't take drugs and then for letting him go on the tour 
you have to admire her a little bit just for you do you do and the, 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 that that scene no 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 more than four days and you could only miss one test um yeah. i think that is one of the most beautifully acted moments that francis mcdormand has ever given and she's given a lot of them because it's also, that i do not want to let you go but i mm-hmm. feel like if i don't let you go then i'm gonna lose you like yeah. i lost anita yeah and that's where i think it is She also has my second favorite lonely moment in the movie because there aren't a ton of them necessarily because they're kind of always surrounded by things and people. I mean, William's got a few. Penny obviously has the one in the auditorium. But when she's on the phone and the new girl, you know, is brought over one of the legendary original <laughs> Band-Aids. Your like, aura she's clairvoyant. Your aura is purple. And she's, she's like, I love you. And he's like, what? I can't hear you. Purple. 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 <laughs> it's like, I love you and I miss you. And then um, he finally says, looking directly at this girl, I love you. <laughs> it's so funny. But anyway, after that, after William hangs up, she just throws the phone down on the floor. And it's just like, oh, yeah. she's lonely by this point. He's been gone so long. And God help me, I feel for her. You know, yeah. as much as I, I want know. William to have this adventure and to have his coming of age and his test, she's going through one too. She's really oh, yeah. going through one. And, you know, when she's at his graduation by herself, and our pending graduate, William Miller, and she claps for him, and everyone's like, huh, she has, who? She has what? to clap the hardest, because no one else is, yeah. It's heartbreaking, <laughs> and it's beautiful. You know, Frances McDormand is just, I don't think there's anything that she's not great in. <laughs> and this small role is so vital, and just so beautifully played once again. She has that great line where she's trying to teach Rock stars have kidnapped my son. And then the girl takes the notes, <laughs> writes it down. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's perfect that she has those little moments, too, because, you know, we get to see what none of the other characters in the movie see, because what do we hear from, like, everybody who talks to her? She freaked me out. <laughs> she freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> Sheldon, the guy, the, the one desk clerk. Tell her to stop. They see the mother that's very protective and very uh-huh. scared of, you know, what her son is doing, which, you know, she has a right to be. He's on tour with a rock band in the 70s. Come on. Yes. <laughs> she has every right to be worried about him. Absolutely. But again, and... like we already talked about with her conversation with Russell. Oh, it's like, so good. She's very protective of her own children. And yet she also wants to be protective of everybody else around her. Like what she says to Russell in there about, you know, do your best. Do your and, like, best. You can be a better person. And when he comes to their house at the end and I felt yeah. we had a connection <laughs> and I think that line maybe comes back to him and mm-hmm. that's why he decides along with Sapphire's comments as to why he uh, goes back to Rolling Stone and says print the story as it is because it's all true you know obviously we don't see him do that he tells the others that and and there's sort of a, a nice little, some personal touches in the closing of this. Like the family is sitting down, and they're having dinner together, mm-hmm. and they're really laughing, and they seem to be enjoying. And there's the empty chair where their father would have been. And Cameron Crowe purposely put that in as a tribute to his own father who passed away when he was young. So. Um, Sweet. I do love that shot, though, because it's that family coming back mm-hmm. together again. They all have an understanding of each other after all yeah. of this. 
And that's and that whole closing montage is sort of uh, it doesn't completely wrap up everything, but it's you know it has Penny going to Morocco, and it has Mm -hmm. Jeff and Russell on stage together again on their 1974 No More Airplanes (laughs) tour. Uh, They're riding Doris and. Doris is the bus. <laughs> the Doris, I just realized no, the way I, no, Doris is the soul of the soul band. of this band. Yes, we've had a with us since we were the Jeff Beebe band, uh, which I find <laughs> is really funny. He brings that up a lot. Yeah. The Jeff Beebe band. We're the Jeff Beebe band. I'm the one that started this band. Not to make it a me thing, but I started right. this band. <laughs> right. In the radio interview, I put a ad in a magazine called Peaches. Just the way he says some of these lines. I just love it. There's so many subtleties in the performances of this that are so entertaining and just kind of endlessly quotable. And I just constantly return to them and just say in my daily life all the time. So another thing that I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk just a little bit about just how brilliant the music is in this movie. Oh, God. You know, I mean, this is Scorsese-level you know, in Goodfellas and Casino level kinds of music choice, you know. And then it also has um, the score written by uh, Nancy Wilson of Heart, who Cameron Crowe was married to at the time. And so is a lot of this sort of beautiful guitar stuff, you know, a lot of classical guitar music that is there that has that heart flair to it a little bit. Also, I, I think just song choice is just impeccable in it. Yeah, and pretty much. Yeah, and sort of transcendent, and it make and it reminds you that music in the seventies, you know, we sort of think of it as disco and things. It wasn't all that. There was so much great music at that time, and so much stuff that was so different, so diverse. I mean, you had the early stirrings of punk happening with Iggy Pop and, you know, the glam rock scene with people like, you know, Lou Reed and David Bowie. And then you had the Eagles and you had Zeppelin and you had the Who and you had all these different groups sort of doing some of their most interesting stuff. I mean, after the breakup of the Beatles, of course, I mean, 1970, it was just something different what that came along and you know the stones sort of really came to their into their own in the early 70s and gosh i just love and that's one of the reasons why this movie feels like a comfortable album too is just those music choices and also just the stuff that the band sings you know when they're hanging out they're singing you know that little song that piggyback song that they sing when they're in the circle together before a show (laughs) and you know the the cover of the rolling stone song that they sing and um and something in the air that they are just singing while they're hanging out at the hotel. It's I also cool. like just them as a band, Stillwater. Yeah. I like their music. Fever Dog is a good song. Fever Dog <laughs> and the, the, the one, oh, doctor, doctor. Uh, those songs were written by Nancy Wilson, so which is pretty cool. I mean, they are, they're good it sounds, tunes. Uh, sounds exactly like the, it fits in so well at the time, so mm-hmm. well. Yeah, they fit the era. 100%. This movie is, like you said, full of so many little moments, too. One of my favorites that I saw this last time around was, um, I think it's at, yes, it's at the Riot House. Mm-hmm. For one thing, one of my favorite side characters is Vic, the world's biggest Zeppelin fan. 
Yes. He's, he's freaking adorable. I love him. <laughs> he's so cute. He's so funny. Robert Plant touched this pin. <laughs> he signed my t-shirt. Don't smudge it. But when William is kind of like being led through the halls of the, the riot house and there's yeah. all these people around, all this commotion going on. He has hey, you're that comedian lettered. Blow me. <laughs> Blow me. He has that moment And that apparently stops. really happened to Cameron Crowe. Who is that? I don't know. It Leonard was it who? was an actor, but but it was I think it was supposed to be Lenny Bruce actually said okay. that to him. <laughs> I was like, who is he actually said, like, Hey, you're that com- you're that comedian. In and, was, and he said, Blow me. Yeah. That I guess really <laughs> happened. Anyway. But William has a moment where he stops in the hallway and he looks into some random room and it's just a couple sitting in singing. the chairs facing each other. He's playing the guitar and they're both singing to yeah. each other. Just like this really, Gosh, sweet, I, I don't know what it is. Just it. like a, such a sweet, slow song. Mm. I just love that It's a beautiful moment. moment. So one of the things that I would recommend, if you're really into this movie, you got to be really into this movie to do this. Watch the commentary on the bootleg cut that is Cameron Crowe and his mom. Okay, I know a lot of it is pretty much him going, yeah, that really happened and this and that. (laughs) But my gosh, the banter that he has between him and his mom, you can see it come through in the film with sort of the relationship that he has with his mom in the movie is kind of there in this commentary track too. Now, technically on the disc, it says that the commentary is director Cameron Crowe and like the director of photography and someone else. But it's really almost 100% him and his mom. Okay. Okay? (laughs) I got to hear this. Yeah. um, Now, I say you got to be really into the movie because there was someone I know who listened to the commentary and it pissed him off to no end because he found it just incredibly self-indulgent and annoying. And I was like, okay, well, that's your thing then. Um, (laughs) He was was not particularly fond. I got to say he was, this person was not particularly fond of the bootleg cut though. He felt it was just self-indulgent, which I think personally, I feel the the bootleg cut is far superior. I mean, to me, it's as superior to the theatrical cut as the director's cut of Dr. Sleep is to the theatrical cut mm-hmm. of that film i mean it just gives you more it just gives you more of the world it gives you more of the characters and if you love these characters and if you love this world you just want as much of it as you can and frankly you know in the interviews for the 20th anniversary cameron crowe was saying he had a four and a half hour cut of this movie and damn it i want to see that movie yeah sure you know i would that. love <laughs> i would love to see a four and a half hour cut of this world i would love to just immerse myself in it for that long i'd do it i know a lot of other people that would too because yeah. hey this is a pretty beloved movie, and I'm I'm understanding a lot more why. Like I said, it wasn't one that I watched a whole lot, sure. like uh, one that I didn't really remember until I heard about other people's love for it. But God, it's you're give, you're giving me all these movies that like I'm falling in love with, like First Magnolia, and now <laughs> Almost Famous is creeping into one of my favorites of all time now. Yeah, and you know, if I'm being honest, with these last few watch throughs, because I hadn't seen Magnolia in so long, if I was to make the list again, Magnolia would probably be number one to be honest i kind of got that feeling yeah and this would probably be in that spot but god i just love this movie and when i was watching this when we made the list i had been watching this movie a lot and it uh was really in my heart and really making me feel so deeply at the time and i was connecting it with you know personal things so much right um and some of those things we've talked about between us privately and 
I'm not going to go into those, <laughs> you know, in, in our public forum here, but I connect with some of those things for different reasons now. And so, but I think Magnolia probably maybe is my number one, to be honest now, but God, they're incomparable. They're just also, I mean, all five of these movies that we've chosen, six. that I've chosen, six that I've chosen and the five that you chose. I mean, obviously we switched, uh, you know, the, you had a different reaction with Cuckoo's mm-hmm. Nest, but that's okay. I mean, that shows that, you know, we do change. So even the term forever favorites is maybe even a problematic term to some extent, right? <laughs> and we've talked about this a little because, oh, well. <laughs> because we do change. Yep. But hey, so totally. we've gotten to talk about tremors, so we're good. <laughs> Anyway, this is a, it's always a pleasure to talk about this movie, though. And I'm so glad that uh, it sort of worked its way into... I mean, you said you watched it like three times this week? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Well, because I wasn't as familiar with it. Like, I wanted to make sure I... I had all those little moments that I wanted to talk about. And then it was like everything else about it was just drawing me in every time. Or I was like looking at a different character this time around. Yeah. Kind of tr- I was trying to figure out everybody in this movie while I was I was watching it. Like I said, three or four times. Yeah. Yeah. And I yeah, kind of like it, doing that sometimes. Sure. Sure. It has something, some kind of connections to something like Magnolia or uh, to some extent like an Altman film. The Altman films have a little bit more, you know... It's, it's harder to separate characters because they're so intertwined. Or Goodfellas, where you can just sort of watch the movie for really focusing on one character and uh, through, a, through it, you know, with each viewing. It's, it's nice, and you can dig into it, you can watch it closely, or you can give it sort of a, just the warm blanket watch. Yeah, you can just watch it and listen to the music and remember all the funny lines and sing along to the tiny dancer scene, yep. which there you, go. you have to do. Whenever you watch which, it. <laughs> which naturally, uh, my road trip playlist has Tiny Dancer. So every time that song comes on, I'm in the car with the kids and, and Jen and we turn that song up and, you know, Jen and I, you know, the kids haven't seen the movie. So, um, <laughs> but Jen and I are, we have our in jokes about it because I used to get the lyrics wrong and, um, <laughs> and things of that nature. So it's just, and you can't listen to that song. Can't listen to the song and not think about movie. this movie. You can't, it's impossible. It's one of those songs. Love that. Okay. So, well, I'm, I'm good on, you good? on that discussion. Good. That was wonderful. Always a joy to talk about this film. Yeah. So I hope I had something to add. Absolutely. Not I, as familiar. You made me see some things that I hadn't thought about, even having seen it many times. So I'm cool. always appreciative of that. Always nice to have differing perspectives and go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. Yeah, that's what's fun about this podcast, too, is the differing mm-hmm. perspectives and just seeing something more than you saw. Because, I mean, obviously, we all have our own perspective, and it's hard to see other people's. And so seeing someone else's is very cool thing. Very cool. So um, recommendation time, I guess. Yeah. Do you mind if I go first? Mine is probably a little bit yeah, more I think, connected yeah, with this Yeah, yours is related. Movie. Okay, so I actually chose... I mean, it's not 100% related, but what I picked was a movie from 1973 when this movie of course takes place the movie Jeremy uh, directed by Arthur Barron it stars uh, Robbie Benson and Glynis O'Connor it's about a young he's, he's like probably about 15 years old or so named Jeremy he lives in New York he 
goes to this special school that sort of has emphasis on the arts. He is a cellist, and clearly the actor does not play cello. So, yeah, I, I kind of had to get over that. Um, and it's like he's not even trying uh, <laughs> to pretend that he does. But that's the only thing that really kind of takes me out of this movie really at all. But it's just a sweet you know, it's kind of a first love story between Jeremy and mm-hmm. uh, Glennis O'Connor, the, who plays this dancer, Susan. Again, a tiny dancer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not, you know, the distant relationship kind of like that William and Penny have. It's an actual young love movie. But I swear, Cameron Crowe has to be a fan of this movie. For a couple of reasons. Um, First of all, there's a shot, the shot where um, William is running after Penny in the streets of New York, past the cabs and everything. That shot, I swear, was lifted right from this movie, uh, (laughs) from one scene (laughs) in particular. And also, Glennis O'Connor wears this coat that, if it didn't inspire Penny Lane's coat, I, (laughs) I, I would be shocked. It's just a beautiful little movie, very low budget. I think it was probably shot on 16 millimeter. It's kind of grainy. Some of the acting is the kind you would expect from a low budget movie, but it kind of doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's just sweet and beautiful and simple. So it's available through Fun City Editions, which is a partner label with Vinegar Syndrome. And it's one of my favorite first time watches of the year. It's called Jeremy. And I watched it again yesterday after watching Almost Famous. And it just kind of felt like the perfect movie to watch after Almost Famous. It was different enough, but it has sort of this musical through line. I dig it. Cool little movie that if you can seek out, I, I would recommend it. And I don't know if it's streaming anywhere, unfortunately, but uh, you might be able to find the Blu-ray for a reasonable price. I I just really love Fun City Editions and all of the stuff that they've been putting out has been good. Yeah. I've really liked everything that I've gotten from them. So My turn? Your turn. I haven't really been watching a whole lot of stuff. I'm still deciding at this very moment what I want to... You know what? I'm going to recommend this documentary because I really liked it. Okay. And it was really interesting to me. It was a few weeks ago that I watched it, so my memory might not be the best. But it's a documentary called Skin, A History Mm -hmm. of Nudity in the Movies from 2020, a topic that I have great interest in. So (laughs) nudity. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, I'm not. But uh, (laughs) something. I don't know. I just wanted to um, see what it had to say. It's very much like a beginner's guide. It doesn't go like too in depth about it, but there was some stuff that I didn't know that I wanted to learn. Like, I knew that nudity had always been a part of like since filmmaking oh, yeah. began. You Absolutely. know, there was uh-huh. they started filming naked people. Yeah, but it was cool to actually get to see some of it and to to really see how much there was in like the twenties and the thirties. And it goes, you know, obviously all the way up to today. And it talks about, you know, the differences between, you know, obviously there's more, there's always more female nudity than there is male nudity um, in movies. And I don't know, like I said, it's very, very much beginner's guide. Maybe it doesn't go as in depth. It's pretty long from what I remember. Mm -hmm. It's 131 minutes, but it's super interesting if you're into that topic. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think it it was streaming on Hulu, I want to say. Yeah, it's on Hulu. Yeah. I've been interested in watching it. It's just one I haven't gotten to yet. And hey, that relates because there is nudity technically and almost famous for a moment. There is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Penny. Okay. I was going to say this, but I don't know if I should. And that is 
Penny in the coat with her red panties with the, the stars on it, stars <laughs> on it, was just like, oh my gosh, that is that is really really sexy. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I know she's young, but hey, she's she was not underage. You know, Kate Hudson was not underage. Okay. I just got to say that when she made the movie. Really sexy. So, yeah. So it was just like, God, <laughs> you know, she's just holding that <laughs> champagne bottle. Oh, man. Anyway. I definitely recommend this. It's cool. I don't know yeah. what else to say. Nothing profound to say about no, it. No, that's It's that's it a cool documentary about a cool topic. So. Yeah, it sounds interesting. And I'm always interested in film history stuff. So that's why I like to write about old movies and uh, yeah. find out as much as I can about them. So anyway, cool. So, Michelle, what do we have next oh. week? Or next time? I always say next week. I know it's <laughs> no, not, it's not next, next week. week. Well... It's my turn next time. It is your turn. To talk about my number one forever favorite movie. The one that I denied admitting to myself for so long. Mm -hmm. But now we're really going to get into why I love 1987's Dirty Dancing. It's been a while since I've watched this. I've really? seen it several times, of course. My It was my mom's favorite movie. But as you've said, it's everybody's mom's favorite movie mom's from a certain movie from, yes. from a certain uh, <laughs> from a certain era right i saw it in the theater when it was re-released which mm -hmm. was an interesting experience of course i saw it with someone i'd rather forget but the movie was good um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so i am looking forward to revisiting it i have a feeling as much as i related to elaine in almost famous i'm probably gonna relate more to baby's dad than i ever have before right um, that's what's what so, i was thinking too it's like yeah this is like you were saying about almost famous like this is a movie where i have definitely related to different characters at different mm -hmm. times throughout my life watching it and i'm I, I have seen it recently it's something that i'll put on you know it's one of those movies where i like the music too this is a movie that i'll put on to have in the back background really not maybe not to watch it but just to hear it sure so i haven't actually like watched it like really in depth so maybe i'll find something else that i love about it or i'll find someone else that i relate to the most in this movie because uh, it's gonna be hard for me to really articulate like why do i love dirty dancing so much there's a lot of different things going on and i hope i can like, sure have it make sense <laughs> yeah you know and I, like I said, I, I mean, what can I say? I mean, I've always liked the movie. I've got a connection with it. I don't know if I love it, but I definitely think it's a terrific movie, you know, um, and I'm. It, I think it's going to be fun to uh, revisit. Yeah. So It's been in my life. Like, I cannot remember a time when I was not watching Dirty Dancing when this was not mm -hmm. just like a part of me and my mom's relationship, I think, is kind sure. of where it started, yeah. where a lot of the love comes from. But I have watched it as an adult. Sure. With totally fresh eyes, you know, after having not watched it for several years. And uh -huh. that'll be like one of my favorite stories to tell when we get to talk about it on the show. Oh, geez, uh, when I, had I that realized, situation with when, I, when I fell in love with this movie, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, you know how you have that moment where you're like, oh, oh yeah, this is my favorite movie. Like, I had one of those with Dirty Dancing. Sure. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> get more in depth with it. I don't want to get started here or yeah, else we'll too. be able to stop. But yeah, yeah we'll, that'll be we'll get going. Time. We'll get going. Save that conversation, right? Yes. It's only been wow. right? we're less than three hours. Yeah, I know. This is so <laughs> weird. And I feel completely like satisfied with the conversation so i'm like wow yeah. <laughs> and so this is awesome 
So I guess it's time for us to sign off. So you can find me on Twitter at Brian D. Kuiper. And I am at Michelle N. Agan. And the show's at Movie Life Pod. Uh, we've been doing some giveaways lately. And uh, one of the giveaways is going to be coming up after I release this episode. We are going to give away a digital copy of Almost Famous. And I believe that digital copy includes both the theatrical and bootleg cuts. So that's pretty cool. So you get two for one there. This is going to require a little bit extra work, though, to win this, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask (laughs) that because we want to spread the word. You know, we'd like to have uh, some rates and reviews. You just need to prove that you've rated or reviewed the show uh, with a screenshot or something in the comments. And that's we want you to make us look cool. We're going to do this giveaway and uh, probably a couple other ones as well. So anyway, just throwing that out there. I feel slightly guilty about doing that. But at the same time, I'm like, we really want to spread the word on the show because we think we've got <laughs> a good show. I think we got a good yeah. show. So if you can rate and review us, if you love the show, please do that for us. It, I know every podcast says this, but it really does make a difference. So and we haven't gotten a lot in a while. So. Especially for a little show like ours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, so little shows like ours could definitely use as much of those as possible. But if you want to follow us on Twitter, that's a great place to start, too. And uh, we're inching yep. up towards 600 followers, and we'd love to get that over 1,000 if we can. And we'll probably do something special. A thousand. Over, I know. When we get over 1,000, <laughs> we'll have to do something special. We've got, we've got a ways to go. My aspirations there, buddy. Yeah, we've got – I do. I do. But I'm, I'm looking at some of the other podcasts that have been around lately, and it's like – uh, they got over a thousand. We can get over a thousand. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We can do this. All right. Anyway, thank you very much. And what are we going to do, Michelle? We will see you all next time. Bye. Say bye. Say bye, Brian. Bye. Blue jean baby. L.A. lady. Seamstress for the band.
Don't let